The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. The war in the media landscape has been raging to a fever pitch. And there's two sides to this war. The one side is the side that always gets talked about. And this side is misinformation versus credible information. Who could disseminate it? Who shouldn't be allowed to disseminate it? And it's basically a war on free speech. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. So what I'm seeing right now is you have outlets such as CNN. Remember, we, we did this whole article about the congressman who wanted to lobby Time Warner, Comcast, all these different cable providers as to whether or not they should carry Fox News, OANN, Newsmax, what have you, conservative news outlets. And of course, CNN, like I was talking about, uh, they go out of their way to constantly put a focus on Fox News as if they are the watchdog for Fox News. So there's this battle going back and forth, and it's not just television news. This is news across the board. The battle is who has correct information, who's allowed to disseminate it, who is fake news, and the whole idea behind it is the gatekeepers saying that they're the only ones that are credible enough to have fake news, well, to disseminate fake news, because that's what they're doing, but to disseminate information as news. And that if you're a conservative blogger, you're a conservative website, like Daily Caller, Red State, what have you, then you're just fake news. Federalist, yeah, you're just fake news, even though you've done research and you've done your due diligence and you're well-sourced. Nah, you're not from the gatekeepers, the NBCs, the ABCs, the Washington Post, the New York Times, you know, the ones that have been around for decades and decades. And that's part of the model because they want to control narratives. And narrative control is very important to the left. It's how they can make Michael Brown look like he's a little 13-year-old kid who just got shot by a cop in the street for putting his hands up in the air when actually he was 18, he was built like a freaking linebacker, and he tried to pull a gun away from a police officer who defended himself, and that's how he got shot and killed. No hands up, no shoot. It's why you can have the Capitol insurrection caused a, a tragedy because the casualty of Officer Sicknick being hit over the head by a fire extinguisher and succumbing to his head wounds can be a narrative when in reality he was never even hit in the head with a fire extinguisher. He died a couple days after the Capitol insurrection over a medical issue. It's how you can paint these narratives. It's how you can just go out and not report on things like let's not find out the motive behind the Vegas shooter. Let's not even spend time talking about, you know, the, the economy under Donald Trump, because if it, you know, if a news narrative happens to fall in the woods and the news media is not there to record it, well, then it never becomes a news item, does it? And so that's how we live in two Americas where you can have a discussion with one person who's sitting there 
yelling and screaming about how you tried to overthrow the Capitol and five people died. And you go, well, we didn't overthrow the Capitol. The Capitol Police were letting people in and some Black Lives Matter and Antifa people started the commotion and the cops waved people in. A cop shot and killed a girl who was unarmed, who would just happen to be climbing up by a window without giving without being given any warning whatsoever. And uh, they're just taking selfies with the shaman, you know, that, who's hanging out in the chambers. It's two different worlds. But that's part of it. The other part that they don't talk about is the business side. And I think that is the true course of this argument. You know, the disinformation versus demonetization. Gatekeepers are losing to the individual. And this could be the reason why they passed that measure that they said, well, you know, we want uh, Uber and Lyft drivers to hire 1099 employees cannot be 1099 employees. They have to be W-2, which from a tax perspective, basically what that boils down to is you have to be hired as an employee. You can't be your own boss. And so in a Lyft Uber situation, Lyft and Uber have to now hire you as an employee versus being able to go, hey, you take our branding, we hook you up with the riders, and you're your own business. You're going to have to report your own taxes. You're going to have to withhold your own tax money to give to the federal or pay estimated taxes, and you're going to be able to write off your own expenses, but it's your own deal. We're just going to provide you with the clientele from a customer-to-customer relationship. Uber, Lyft, they're in the business they say they're in the business of ride sharing, but they're in the business of providing individuals with clients. And the ride sharing program is basically the 1099 self-employed boss who decides I'm going to drive my car around my assets. I'm going to pick up people when I want to, and I'm going to get paid from the clientele referred to us by Uber and Lyft. Well, this had another wide reaching effect as it made many media people who were freelancers and what have you lose the ability to gain income in that kind of method, in that kind of model. That could be a reason why they did that. You know, unions definitely wanted more control. But it also would have to make you go back to the days of being an employee for a news outlet or some sort of journalistic uh, endeavor. You think about the original intent of the newspaper. Yeah, you got the newspaper. You read the newspaper. It had news items. It informed you. But that's not the only reason why you got it. And a lot of times, that wouldn't be the only reason why you would have bought it. A lot of people bought it for the weather forecast back in the day. This is before there was any uh, you know, television. Or even when television was there, it was still something that was of a viable, uh, a viable feature. Um, this is before the internet, before you could get a weather app on your phone. This is back when you would open up a newspaper. Maybe you wanted to read the funnies and, and have a lighthearted take on, on, the, on the day. Maybe you wanted to do the crossword puzzle. Maybe you wanted to read some of the opinion pieces or some of the, you know, Dear Abby back and forths. All of that was in the newspaper. But the newspaper wasn't there to deliver the news although sometimes it did and it broke big news items, it was there to bring the community, the, the eyes of, of a community onto that paper and the advertisements. 
were that were the reason behind the newspaper. Because if you can build a town square, then you can advertise to the town square. There's value in paying for that advertisement because the clientele is being brought to the advertisers. Kind of like Lyft and Uber, right? So that being the case, that's what the model was. So those who were really wanting to write and, and go after their journalistic talents and their dreams of being, you know, a gumshoe journalist, well, they would be able to do that and be paid handsomely because it helped add credibility to the brand that can then charge for more advertising. But then something happened. Then the internet came about. And when the internet came about, search engines became a, a deal. How do you navigate the internet and find things? In the beginning, in the 90s, it was very clunky. And you had to do a lot of searching around. You had maybe somebody told you about something they stumbled across. You had early search engines. And when you had those search engines, and I think that's how AOL probably did so well because AOL was a portal to the internet but getting through that portal, you went through links to New York Times and Washington Post and news items because AOL decided to do in its own news items. But that lent itself to a yellow book, yellow pages situation. Where, were, where will your newspaper fall in the yellow pages? Are you going to be at a number one automotive or are you going to be down at disease? So then you had to find a way to be noticed within the search engine so that people would stumble across your items. Well, to do that, you had to really promote yourself through search engine optimization, and you had to really ramp up your website because there was no websites for newspapers at that time. So you had to build that. Well, then that led to something else. That led to social media. Now social media was taking new town squares and placing them in areas to where people could consume news items as it's being thrown to them through the website, which the website was basically, or through the social media sites, which the social media sites were using to monetize for themselves off of your information. And that's where things started to get to a point where let's find out what's even more sensational. Where are my hot takes? How am I going to be noticed? That's where you got all these crazy takes on, on, on Twitter and Facebook. That's why you see all of these really bizarre takes by even businesses trying to get noticed. You know, Oreos talking about trans people are women and, uh, or what have you. Trans people are real people. You know, you've got Teen Vogue talking about, you know, sexual things. You know, it's, it's things that they're trying to do to get noticed. Because if you do something absurd, it might go viral, right? Whether or not it helps your credibility seems to not matter as much these days. But it did something else. Social media did something else. It then opened the door for those who wanted to be their own boss, who wanted to have their own distribution, right? And that's what's happening with Substack. This is from Glenn Greenwald. Journalists start demanding Substack censor its writers to bar critiques of journalists. 
This new political battle does not break down along left and right lines. This is an information war waged by corporate media to silence any competition of dissent. I wrote about how corporate journalists, realizing that the public's increasing contempt for what they do is causing people to turn away in droves, are desperately inventing new tactics to maintain their stranglehold over the dissemination of information and general, or generate captive audiences. That is why journalists have bizarrely transformed from their traditional role as leading free expression defenders into the most vocal censorship advocates using their platforms to demand that tech monopolies ban and silence others. The motive of self-preservation is driving them to equate any criticisms of their work with harassment, abuse, and violence, so that it is not just culturally stigmatized, but a banning offense, perhaps even literally criminal, to critique their journalism on the grounds that any criticism of, their, of them places them in danger. Under this rubric, they want to construct, they can malign anyone they want, ruin people's reputations, unite and generate hatred against those uh, chosen targets, but nobody can even criticize them. An independent platform or venue that empowers other journalists and other ordinary citizens to do reporting or provide commentary outside of their repressive uh, constraints is viewed to them as threats to be censored and destroyed. Every platform that enables any questioning of their pieties or any irrelevant critiques of mainstream journalism, social media sites, YouTube, Patreon, Joe Rogan's Spotify program has already been systematically targeted by corporate journalists with censorship demands, often successfully. Back in November, the media critic Stephen Miller warned, it's only a matter of time before the media tech hall monitors turn their attention to Substack. And ever since, in every interview I have given about the success of Substack and every time I have written about journalist-fed censorship campaigns, I have echoed that warning that they would soon turn their united guns on this platform. Miller's prediction was prompted by a Columbia Journalism Review article entitled The Substackerati, which claimed that Substack was structurally unfair because, quote, most of, quote, the most successful people on Substack are, quote, white and male. Several are conservative and, quote, have already been well served by existing media power structures. See, that's the real root of it right there is names were brought up through the old guard media. They built their brands. Now they go out on their own and the following can follow along, which that seems not to be the case, according to Glenn Greenwald, who actually left his publication, The Intercept, not a right leaning publication whatsoever to do a Substack because he didn't like the way media was going anyways. Back to the article. All of that was false. The must-read and highest-earning writer on Substack is Heather Cox Richardson, a previously obscure Boston College history professor who built her own massive readership without ever working at a corporate media outlet. And the writers that article identified in support of the claim, Matt Tybee, uh, Andrew Sullivan, Matt Iglesias, and myself, do not remotely owe our large readerships to existing media power structures. The opposite is true, as Washington Post Megan Marcardle explained, quote, these Substack writers got so big by starting blogs that they could sell to traditional publications. They are not monetizing an audience they acquired through larger institutions, but reclaiming one that they created themselves. Obviously, one major characteristic 
of the successful one-woman show is the ability to swim against the crowd. Given that, it seems almost obvious that Substack would select people who are not in tune with the dominant views of the establishment media and that the biggest audience numbers will come from folks who are not in tune with the established media at all. That is precisely why there are so why they why they are so furious. They cannot stand the fact that journalists can break major stories and find an audience while maintaining an independent voice, critically questioning rather than obediently reciting the orthodoxies that bind them, and most of all, without playing their infantile intergroup games and submitting to their hive mind degrees. In fact, the more big stories you break while maintaining your independence from them, the more intense is the contempt they harbor for you. That explains, among other things, their willingness to watch Julian Assange, who has broken more major stories than all of them combined, be imprisoned for publishing document, uh, documents. That they are angry and upset is, this, is irrelevant. That only matters because these re, uh, resentments and fears that they hold are losing their monopolistic power over public thought and it's translating them into concerted and effective censorship campaigns. He's right to a degree because it goes back to our original argument, argument one. It's about controlling the media narrative. It's about vilifying those that go against the grain. But I think what I'm not seeing, and I'm going to read this a little bit further, but what I'm not seeing so far in his article is the financial side that some of these people like Joe Rogan with his podcast, which is why podcasts are so popular because they are done strictly at by the by the individual it's the the ease of recording and placing a podcast like myself it doesn't take much to do it which is pretty nice from a broadcasting standpoint but this is a threat all of these things substack is an independent website that journalists or would-be journalists or people like myself could go sign up create an account and if we were able to build credibility build a brand name we could monetize it and become our own boss become our own news outlet and that's scary to the old guard now they're going to say well it's because these people are putting out misinformation that they're becoming so popular but here in a second i want to get into what i think is a mirror situation to what's happening now with journalism, which has already happened in another industry that can kind of explain the whole thing. It's an industry I was a part of for many, many years and was in the middle of that transformation and watched it swing from one way to the other. And that is the music industry. And we're going to get into how the music industry mirrors what is going on right now with mainstream media, the old guard, the ability to make your own way, the the ability to push your own content, the pushback that you would get by those who want to keep the old guard, and how it all mirrors the same product life cycle here in just a moment. This is Adrian Slade. All right, so the ultimate example of the clickbaity business model of media is Donald Trump. Again, Donald Trump showed us everything, not by his own doing sometimes, but mostly by everyone's reaction to him. And the leftist media for the entire four years of his term were like, oh, we got to stop Trump's tweets. Trump is a danger. He's putting misinformation out. He calls us fake news. We're the enemy of the people. We got to get rid of him. Well, then Jack Dorsey gets rid of him. 
Facebook gets rid of him. <laughs> Twitter has annihilated his account. And then what do they do? First thing they do is they go, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't have gotten rid of him because we don't know what he's thinking or tweeting or what, you know. And then, oh, CNN's viewership goes down. Other news article or oh, other news organizations, their ratings go down. Their revenue starts to dip. And then what's the one weird phenomenon that we have? Well, it's the phenomenon that's happening right as we speak. What is happening is Trump knows he can lift up his right cheek and squeeze out a little toot, and it's going to make news. Now, he doesn't have access to a platform directly, so he's been issuing statements. And, you know, we read some of those statements, Carl Rove on the last podcast, some of these other ones. So he issues these statements, and what does the media do? They start reporting it. They start posting it. The latest statement was, was great. Statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States. I hope everyone remembers when they're getting their COVID-19, often referred to as the China virus vaccine, that if I wasn't president, you wouldn't be getting that beautiful shot for at least five years at best and probably wouldn't be getting it at all. I hope everyone remembers. So that's the statement he puts out. And it's crazy because all of these news outlets, all of these media blue check marks, they're going out there and posting it everywhere. So does Trump really have to be on Twitter with a Twitter account when everyone is doing the bidding for him? Daniel Foster posted this, not signaling anyone out, but he is using the press like bleeping drug mules for his tweets. It is 100% on you at this point. <laughs> He's got a point there. Daryl Issa is currently raising some extremely good points at his tech journalism hearing. If journalism outlets are failing, why should it be the government's job to bail them out at the expense of more successful tech companies? That's a good point, too, because the tech companies are bolstering a lot of these organizations. So now there's starting to be this melding of big tech with news organizations because they have to find a way to prop up the models. The models are dying. You remember now with Donald Trump, um, they get the clicks. See, the news industry is more worried about who's going to show up first with the news item at the very beginning and who's going to be able to report it to get all the clicks. So they get all the clicks because they're the first with the exclusive news. And if your exclusive news is a statement by an ex-president that's already banned from social media's town square, a journalist can deliver it and bask in the rewards, even though said journalist delivering it absolutely despises that president and happy that he's been banished from the social media network. That's how it happens. The comparison to the evolution of technology and its impact on certain, certain industries, like the news industry, like music. Music industry can, can show this, this rise and fall, this cause and effect. But the technological evolution has a big impact on it. And it also has a big impact about who are the gatekeepers, how you enter the industry. Is there a barrier of entry into the industry? Um, how will you succeed? So if you think about it, um, back in the early days, there was record labels or there was an agent or there was somebody who was able to find the talent and then turn the talent into a star. But that meant it was very selective as to who can be a part of it. 
You know, that you had your Warner Brothers, your Atcos, your AM, or, you know, you, you had your, uh, uh, Island records and, and sun records and things like that. And the radio stations were who they went to, to get exposure, much like the newspapers had to go to a newsstand. They had to go to a place that was situated in a certain place. And there was different genres, you know, there was news, there was entertainment news, there was financial news, whatever the case may be, just like there was rock, there was R and B, there was jazz, So there was always gatekeepers, though. There was always a selection of big record labels, big time pockets of money. And they can get you where they wanted to put you um, by payola with radio stations, which was the town square where everyone could stumble in to your content. And one of the things that happened over the years was, you know, you had two things that happened. You had your sort of like your big thinker journalists who were just uh, technical giants. Um, on the right, you had your, you know, Buckley, you know, uh, on the left, I, you know, whatever journalist they had, Edward R. Murrow, whatever, what have you. Well, those were like your session musicians. They were like your Muscle Shoals, your, you know, the Wrecking Crew movie where, the white group of session musicians were recording all the hip hop and BG uh, uh, beach boy songs. You know, uh, you had like uh, Steely Dan, you know, Walter Becker and uh, Fagan, whatever they would write all these songs. There was the singer songwriters of the AM gold era that were writing all these hits a lot of times. And it's very similar to modern day country where they would write the songs and somebody would just step in and take advantage of it by singing them and recording them. So you had that happening, but then they would find these talented groups that they would put on their label and promote because they knew they would get an ROI, return on investment. And that's where you had your Led Zeppelins, and then you got your Van Halens and Foreigners and Bostons. And and then they picked their genre and they pushed the narrative of those genres. So you had your Bostons, your Foreigners, your... Ario Speedwagons, Your Journeys, and then you had, you know, uh, Disco Era, where you had the Bee Gees and Gloria Gaynor and uh, all of these groups that were coming up through that scene. And you had your R&B, your Stacks, you know, you had all of these labels that you would then go to for brand loyalty because you knew if you got something from that brand that it was probably going to fit the type of thing that you liked. And they did this for decades. I mean, that's when you got into your glam metal in the 80s. That's when you got into your hip-hop in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, where they kept pushing a style, and someone would be successful and take the lead. And then they would follow it up with another narrative and another narrative and another narrative, all similar until it just totally just ends up falling apart because people were sick of the narrative. And then they would move on to something else. Well, then technology started evolving. Much like the printing press became more affordable, recording software became affordable. So then bands that were up and coming could find a way to shell out a crap ton of money, and it was still expensive, but they would be able to get a decent quality recording and go to record labels. But there were still gatekeepers. They were still the big New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, still the Warner Brothers and the, the Geffen Records and what have you. 
But then, as that started building up, other people who were in the underground would try to take things and, you know, do it their own way on shoestring budgets. And we had that in, in news media. You know, you had your underground zines and your blogs and what have you. But regardless of all that, the hardcore scene was all do-it-yourself. It was all on a local level. There was different pockets. You know, you had your New York hardcore. You had your uh, D.C. hardcore. Um, California had its punk scene. But the gatekeepers were always still in charge. Because you would get notoriety on an organic level through tape trading and, you know, seven inch vinyl. You throw a microphone in the middle of the garage and record and press it to vinyl. But to get a good quality recording cost a lot of money. To get any sort of marketing cost a lot of money. To get any tour support cost a lot of money. So you had to go to the gatekeeper. If you wanted to do something on a grander level, a lot of those hardcore punk bands, they didn't care for that. That's the whole reason for being was to rail against the establishment. And that's what was happening with some of these zines and blogs and things in the 90s and 2000s. And speaking of the 90s, think about, I call it the era of the cutout bin. And what I mean by that was you had good talent putting out good content. But yet it was in the cutout bin for two bucks. Well, why was that? A lot of times people go, well, you know, they just weren't that good or they would be popular. No, it wasn't that at all. A lot of times these great purveyors of content, these great artists, these great bands would record music and get a, get a record deal. But then while that record deal was developing or why they, while they were in the middle of creating their initial offering, another company was buying that company out and had a different view, had a different vision. And a lot of times because of contract negotiations and things between mergers and these different gatekeepers merging together, buying companies out, you got left, you got thrown off to the side. So the gatekeepers decided your fate, even though you were talented and had good content it just wasn't in the vision. You know, a record label would buy out another record label. It's very similar to what's happening with right now. You had HuffPost. They laid off 47 writers, 47 journalists. Why is that? Well, they did that because BuzzFeed bought them out. And you're seeing a lot of this consolidation in the news industry. So it's similar to that. Then you get good writers that get just thrown out. You know, I mean, most of them are hacks, uh, unfortunately, but there's a few littered throughout. You've got your Barry Weisses out there and you've got your, uh, you know, uh, she's actually one of the few that I can think of off the top of my head. But good writers that were basically, you know, left to their own devices to the point where they had to leave because it just wasn't fitting in the vision. You know, she left because the vision was to be more woke. The vision was to be more uh, leftist and not to think objectively, to be more partisan. And she's like, uh, didn't I get into this field so that I can write objectively? So, yeah, I mean, you got into uh, a lot of the, the different 
uh, regional things coming out of the 90s into 2000 with your, you know, Dirty South, Master P, all that No Limit, uh, Rick Ross all in the hip hop community. Um, and you see a lot of that in these different news outlets with your Voxes and, you know, Slates and what have you. Um, but that was because, you know, those, those uh, organic upbringings came about you know, Dirty South and what have you. Think of think of '90s uh, grunge. It was all a re- it was a it, the pendulum swung. It was an action to the or a reaction to the action. You know, we were so inundated with the same narrative over and over and over again, just pushed multiple times that the other side was the refreshing new side. The other side was the reaction to it. It was the thumbing the nose to it. It was the revolutionary spirit of America. That's kind of what I did a whole podcast back when Trump was elected about how he was kind of like that scene because the establishment was giving us the same crap over and over. It was giving us the glam metal over and over. It was giving us the pop, you know, uh, Backstreet Boys, sync, whatever over and over. Back then it was the new kids on the block and what have you. And out of that came the reaction to where anything went. That's where you had your Nirvanas, your Jane's addictions, your fish bones, you know, whatever. Um, but we could talk about that on another thing. But going back to how the news media is similar to the record industry, as technology became more affordable, then you had your Dirty Souths and your, uh, you know, Rick Ross and you had your Epitaph Records and Fat Records, you know, Fat Mike, uh, No Effects, what have you. Um, because they were able to record these things all completely on their own. And it got into brand loyalty. You would buy something from Sub Pop Records because Nirvana was on it. Soundgarden was on that record label. It was out of Seattle. So you would try out new artists. You know, you would try out new artists on Epitaph because Bad Religion was on there and The Offspring and Pennywise. So you would take a chance on, uh, you know, other groups. And that's kind of what was happening with a lot of, of journalism. You would go to certain outlets and go, you know what, I'll, I'll read these guys because I trust that brand. But all of that has kind of gotten knocked away. In music, it got knocked away when Pro Tools came up and the fact that uh, a lot of the record industries became more, they, they lost their gatekeepership. They could no longer be the gatekeeper. They would just have to fund the marketing. And that's kind of what happened with news media. Now they're all finding out you can do YouTube videos completely on your own. You, you know, it's kind of like with the recording artists, you had pro tools. I mean, you could record your whole album in your room upstairs and sound like a freaking studio out in California. So you can make your own website. Now you can do YouTube videos. Podcasting has become a huge thing because it's directed by you. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a gatekeeper giving you permission, telling you what to write, what to produce. And so it's now in the hands of the content creator. And they don't like that. So the gatekeepers have lost control. And the content creators, you know, the reporters, or in the case of the music industry, the bands, they now have the control. Problem is, They also have to gain an audience, and that's an issue in both music and in journalism. You have to now gain a crowd, and that's why you're seeing these dumb hot take 
news headlines from time to time, you know, where hiking is racist or something like that. Stupid opinion pieces. It's all for clicks. It's all to bring people to the table. Now, we do know that the news media will go above and beyond for an agenda. So it's not completely financially motivated because if that were the case, crappy ratings on MSNBC, CNN, what have you, that would be a financial and a business decision to fix. They don't seem to care to fix that. They continue to double down because they have to uphold the narrative at the cost of ratings and ad revenue. But in print journalism and, you know, newspapers and online websites and what have you, they now are competing with the content creators to get the clicks. So you get these crazy headlines from time to time. But of course, the narrative matters the most, which is why you'll have a situation like the Washington Post uh, had where they had to retract their story about the phone call that President Trump had with the Georgia election investigator where they said, oh, well, you know, he was saying, find the fraud. Um, Well, apparently Trump did not tell the investigator to find the fraud or even say that she would be a national hero if she did. That was all lies. So the media narrative will try to hold up uh, regardless of whether or not it's real or maybe they'll exaggerate something for clickbait because they need the eyeballs and they need the audience. They need the traffic. They need all of that, but they will find a way to also uh, do it for the narrative. But I think a lot of what you're seeing, like I've laid out financial models and, and the, the need for revenue is driving much of what they're, uh, what they're touting these days. And they're trying to say, well, you know, we just want to outlaw fake news and not have these people go to Substack and, and these other outlets because it's not real journalism, journalism, but real journalism, as I like to call it, journalism, must be, uh, the Washington post who basically outright lied to everybody. <laughs> So this is the new media, and this is where it's going, and it's now in the hands of the content creators. It's in the hands of the talent and not the gatekeepers. They've lost that edge. So we'll see where the new media heads from here on out. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, Overcast, iHeart. Tune in. You can also get the uh, free Roku channel in your streaming store. Just search Adrian Slade Show in your Roku streaming channel store. Check out the blog, adrianslade.show.com. And you can also donate. Go to anchor.fm slash adrianslade slash support. Uh, leave a voicemail too. Um, I think it's 929-GO-GO-USA. 929-GO-GO-USA or on the anchor.fm app. You can leave a voicemail for the show there. We'll see you guys next time.